Hey, uh, we are in a rooted series. We are again paralleling what our small groups are doing. We're going through a, a like a. It's not a curriculum. It's just a small group kind of. Um, it's a. It is a curriculum. It's just a series of things that we're talking about. Of what does it mean to follow Jesus? What is it? What are those key pieces that we really want to root into to have a solid life of um, looking like Jesus in the way that we live independently, but also as a a community. So. Um, that has been good. This week, we are going to continue in that as we, um, as we just talk about what it means to live really a, a life of, of meaning, and we're going to look at what God intended our lives to be. So uh, you guys ready? Um, this, this week's going to be a little bit different. Um, I'm excited about it, uh, but we're going to dig into some stuff. You know, this last week, I was watching this, um, watching this special and it was about these archaeologists down in, in, South America, in South America, Central America, but primarily Central America, and they're digging around, and they have been, the things they've been finding have completely changed our understanding of what we understand uh, went on in Central America with the Mayan uh, empire that was down there that really controlled that area before uh, Europeans came uh, to the New World. And so um, uh, what was fascinating to me, though, was the way that these guys, they'll be out down there, and if you've ever watched these programs, you know, they'll be, they'll be with like these uh, brushes, you know, just brushing away just bits of dust at a, a time, and they'll pick up just this fragment, just this shard of, of something, you know, just a fragment of rock or something. They'll see this little squiggle on it, and they'll recognize it as being like this writing that tells some amazing name or is part of this story that, you know, it's the, the piece they've been looking for in their puzzle, you know? And they look at it. Most of us, we'd be digging around there and we'd be shovelfuls, you know? And we'd come across a rock like that. We'd go, ah, whatever, and we'd move on, right? But they see it, why? Because they have the eyes to see what it is, right? They, they have the eyes to see meaning in something that we just consider meaningless. And it got me thinking because I think a lot of times when we read the Bible, it's kind of that way, isn't it? We get to these places that seem kind of cryptic or hard to understand, and we don't know what to do with them, so we just move on. But the truth is, is that there have been people that have dug and dug, and they've, they've invested their lives into understanding just what um, the, the history, the culture, the language that goes behind this book. And there are times that they give us insights that can change our whole understanding of what God is saying. And he can take some of the most elusive kind of passages at times and, and transform our heart, can change our lives. Things that we would have just thrown to the side that he can actually use and just in, and radically transform us. You know, the passage that we're looking at today in Philippians 2, it's not one of those passages that many people have gotten a lot out of this passage. But one of the things I want us to see today is, man, there are layers to this thing that we probably haven't looked at. And so today... I hope that you're uh, ready to be a bit of an archaeologist, because um, we're going to do some rooting around. We're going to do some digging, and uh, what that's going to require. I know some of you guys come with like Bible and pens, you know, or you know, paper and pens, you know, and you're taking notes and stuff. Um, some of you guys have your phones out, and you're taking notes on your phones and that kind of thing, and uh, that's going to be good for this morning because there's things that we're going to get into that if you don't write them down, I can almost guarantee you, you will not remember them when you leave this place. You'll remember the main thing. I mean, I'll give you guys something you can go with. So if you just want to sit and listen and enjoy the whole thing, that's fine. But if you do have something to write with, it might be worth uh, doing that today. Just warning you. You guys are going, wow, I signed up for the wrong week, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, it'll be good. It'll be good. Philippians 2, 1 through 12. 
uh, we're going to dig in. So uh, stand with me as we begin to look at this passage, really dig into it and then ask God, God, show us something to see so that we would have eyes to see uh, something that we haven't seen before. Philippians 2, 1 through 12. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, do nothing from selfish, uh, selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be clung to, but rather he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in human likeness, uh, and being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue would confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So basically, this is saying, you know, live like Jesus, right? Uh, live like Jesus, be good to other people. That's what God is looking for. That's what God is working for in us. But what if I were to tell you there are layers in this thing? I mean, you guys, this passage has within it, it has within it really the key to what God is looking for in a life, a life that would be a life of meaning. It's a key to understanding what does it mean to live a life that's worth living? What does it mean to live that life, a meaningful life? Today's message is titled that, is, it's a meaningful life. Father, this morning, again, uh, I, I always am asking you, Father, um, we need you to speak. We need you to uh, open our eyes to see. Uh, there's things that we can do down here, and, and Father, we are so thankful for the, the ways that you have given us to participate in that work that you do in our lives, to participate in that transformation that goes on in each one of us to make us more like Jesus, and, and that transformation in our minds to help us to think and understand and to know, and, and that transformation that happens when your spirit comes in and he opens our eyes up to see things that we hadn't seen before about who you are and about how much you loved us and about what it is that you have called us to and what a life looks like that has meaning. So Father, I thank you for that ways that we can participate, but we need you. We're like the junior partners here. We're not the, we're not the senior leaders in this. And we need your spirit to be here and to be guiding us and to be uncovering these, to, to be showing us how to dig into your word, into this word, to be brushing back the dust so that we can see clearly how it fits together and what it means. So Father, um, I just ask that for your glory, that your spirit would be, take this place and make it a, a holy place, make it a, a transformational place 
a place where minds are changed and lives are, are, are shaped so that we walk out of here looking and living more like Jesus than we did when we came in. So we just lift this time up to you. We give you our attention. We give you our, our ears and our eyes and our hearts and our minds. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a seat. So uh, I do uh, premarital counseling um, as part of what I do as a pastor. And, and some of you guys, I've actually had the honor of coming alongside of you and, and walking through that with you. But one of the things that I ask couples to do as they get closer to that day of their wedding, I ask them to choose a passage that they would see as kind of a, a life verse, a guiding verse for their new life to, together. And many, um, many times couples will choose this passage, Philippians 2. It might be verses 1 and 2 or 1 through 4 or maybe the whole thing that we just read. But they'll choose that because with all the, the talk in it of like consolation and love and affection and encouragement and, and un, being united and, and looking to the interests of the other, I mean, it just is this great theme, you know, for a wedding. And everybody gets all, oh, isn't that lovely? You know, that kind of thing. And, um, you know, for that reason, Carrie and I actually had this. This was the passage that we had read at, at our wedding. But um, it ends up that uh, historically, if you would have gone back to when this was first written, the, the Roman ears to who this letter was written, um, they would have heard this much more gritty than they would have heard flowery. They would have heard much Man, it would have been just a deeper, um, really more direct kind of a challenge than they would have heard comfort. In, in fact, they would, have, um, they would have heard more of a, a challenge in the way that they live their lives, not just in the way that they kind of feel about who God is or see uh, who Jesus is. And so um, this morning, I want us to see how each of these words, you know, when the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter, when he wrote this, to, he picked these words. He picked them because he knew how they would impact this, this group that he was writing to. And I, I wanna dig into this. I wanna pick this um, passage apart a bit to help us to maybe try and reclaim some of that impact. Because some of that impact, I think, is needed for us to understand what God is saying here. Uh, I mean, this, this really would have come across to them kind of like a punch in the gut. I mean, it would have just had this it would have taken their breath away, what it was challenging them to do, what God was challenging them to be as far as what it meant to live a life that looked like Jesus. And so um, as we look at that, I just want you to know that we're gonna, we're gonna take this piece apart and, um, and look a little bit more depth so that we can regain some of that. Um, to start with, uh, I need you guys to know some of the background of this, this town called Philippi. Um, they had a history to them, and it was, a, it was really an interesting history. Before, uh, you know, for the longest time, the town of Philippi was really a pretty nondescript place. It was up in, in uh, Asia Minor, or, or in Greece, actually, kind of in Macedonia area. And um, it, was, it was just, it was there. It was just another city that was in Rome. Well, then there was this, this battle that happened in the plains outside of the town. And it was really where it was decided between these two uh, huge armies that settled this um, across the empire. It was a civil war. And so it was uh, the, the um, murderers of Julius Caesar, basically, had gathered their armies and they were fighting against Octavian, who would later become Augustus Caesar, and he had gathered his army. Now, 
Augustus was actually the adopted son of Julius, so this was kind of personal to him, but it was also very much this, um, this civil war and the deciding battle, and so he had gathered, and I mean, they had legions upon legions. There were tens and tens of thousands of soldiers who were out on these, on these fields, and, and when he won, when Octavian and his forces won, it really, it ended the civil war. It brought the the, the empire back together, and it brought in what came to be known as the Pax Romana. The Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, which lasted like 200 years. It was unparalleled in the peace and prosperity that it brought to Rome. So this was a big deal. And it was such a big deal to Octavian that after he became emperor as Augustus, he said, you know what, Philippi is an important place, and I'm gonna raise it status. I'm gonna, I'm gonna make it a colony of Rome. And so they literally, when they made something a colony, they would literally bring dirt in from Rome and kind of rebuild the city on Roman dirt so that it was a Roman city. And they'd reshape it so it looked like Rome. They would kick out all of the former inhabitants. And so you had all these, um, like the, the soldiers and stuff that had fought in that battle would come and repopulate this place and they'd get land grants and they'd get titles and they would get these titles that were equivalent to those who were in Rome. And so any child that was born in that, in that colony from that point on was considered a Roman citizen. This was like Rome, even though it wasn't Rome. It was Rome away from Rome. And so, yeah, some of you guys would catch that. So, um, but he'll stick with you. Yeah, you'll remember this about Philippi now. So uh, what that meant, though, was that the, pity, the, the people that, that Paul was writing to in the city, they were Roman. And they were going to hear the words that he spoke as Romans would hear them that might be different from the way that you might expect if he was just writing to another of the cities that were anywhere around that, the cities of Macedonia, the cities of Greece. And one of the things that's been missed over the years is that these, this population was a different population. And again, just like that, that special I watched on TV, in recent years, people have been uncovering and digging around and saying, you know, I think that this population was hearing this message very differently than we might have been hearing it, that we might have been translating it according to kind of the way that must, much of the other, many of the other people would. So um, I want us to think about first, just those first two verses, okay? First two verses, you find, you find four phrases that are kind of if this, and then you find a then this, right? And it, it gives an action. So he says, if this is true, then I, I want you to think, of, I want you to do this. And we're gonna pick that apart a bit because this is really where a lot of it rises. But um, I want us to look at how different these words were that they were hearing. For example, that first if clause, it says, if there is any encouragement in Christ. Well, this word that um, is translated encouragement, is, it's a word, it's called, it's, um, the Greek word is parklesis. Now, you don't have to know that. We're not gonna quiz afterwards. But the word is, remember that just because by the time I get to this end of this section, you're gonna need to know that that's the word. But parklesis in many other contexts, encouragement might be exactly what it means. But to the Romans, they had this very specialized use of this word. And what it meant was, in Roman society, they had this group of people that they believed that they descended from the original founding families of Rome. And that was a big deal. They were the, they were the, um, uh, they were 
called the patricians. It was like the upper class of Roman society. And patrician comes from the word father in, in Latin, is patris. And uh, they were called either patricians or they were called patrons. Um, and these were the ones who were the wealthy and they had all kinds of resources. Well, there were those who worked for them. They weren't slaves, but they were kind of their allies in business and, and uh, in legal matters and stuff like that. And they were called the clients. And the clients had obligations to their patricians, to their patrons, and the patrons had obligations to their clients. One of the obligations the patrons had was that if a client asked for something, because of the relationship they had, the patron was almost obliged, I mean, just obligated to grant the request. So if, if a client came up and said, hey, um, my chariot is kind of, the wheels are starting to squeak and you know, starting to get a bumpy ride, I need a new chariot um, to get all the work done that I'm doing for you, then the patron was obligated to get that person that new chariot. Um, but here's where Philippians comes in, because a client might go, and he might make a, a request of a, their patron, but for someone that was not directly connected to the patron, right? So maybe their family member, maybe their chariot was kind of getting old and in a rust bucket, and they said, you know, my brother needs a new chariot, so can you, and the patron was still obligated to fulfill that request, Okay? But what the client was seen as doing, it was called advocating. It was they were advocating for this third party who had no connection with their patron. It was called advocating, or in Greek, the word that they used was paraklesis. So here in Philippians, this question isn't just asking, are you encouraged because of all that Jesus has done? It's not asking that. It's saying, Did Jesus not leverage his position with perhaps the greatest patron patris father ever, God the Father? Did he not leverage his position on behalf of us who had no connection with God in order to grant us what we needed? Well, that's a whole different question, isn't it? That's not just saying, do you get warm feelings when you think about Jesus? It's saying, do you see what Jesus did? That you were cut off from God and he leveraged everything that he had on our behalf? That we may have been loved by Jesus, but we really kind of had no connection to make that request of God ourselves. And he sets that one up and he leaves it hanging, right? Well, and then he gets into the second one. And he says, he says, if there, we have, if there is any, if there is any um, consolation of love, right? Well, consolation of love, it really is this, again, it's this word. It's not, um, paramuthion doesn't just mean consolation. It could mean that. It could mean that you're coming alongside of someone and you're giving them words of comfort in the midst of something that they're going through. But the Romans wouldn't have heard it that way. They would have heard it in this way, that a client... When they saw how great their patron was and part of the thing that they did, they would go into the marketplace and they would start coming alongside of other people and telling them how great their patron was because there were all kinds of clients trying to show that their patron was the greatest, right? And so they're going out in the marketplace and they're saying, no, you think that patron's great. You should hear what my patron did. And they'd tell the story, paramuthion, that's what it meant. Muthion is where we get our, our word myth or story from. They're going out and they're telling stories about their patrons. Now, they would, might be telling true stories. They might be telling you know, fanciful and kind of expanded stories. 
But paramotheon just meant that they'd go out and they'd tell these stories about their patron to tell how great they were. And so this question isn't just saying, are you consoled? Are you, you know, does love make you feel better when you're hurting? It's not asking that. It's saying, does what God has done for you as your patron, as your patris, as the one who you've been advocating and now he has become your patron as well, that, that chief provider and, and lover and provider of grace and comfort and protection to you, is what he has done, does that stir up in you a love that compels you to go into the marketplace and tell everyone how your, your patron, your patris, your father is the greatest? Well, again, that's a whole different question, isn't it? I mean, that has a lot more teeth to it, a lot more kind of obligation to it, but he leaves that one hanging. And then he says, he says, if there is any fellowship of the spirit, and again, fellowship doesn't just mean fellowship. Fellowship means, it's this word koinonia, and it means that we take what is ours, it's a sharing. And so sure, fellowship might be we share a cup of coffee and talk about football, but fellowship to them meant that we start sharing things. We take the things that are ours and we, we make them available to other people as if they were their own. The way that, a, a, the way that a, a, a patron would share with a client. It wasn't just they said, yeah, you can use this for a day. It's like, if you need that chariot, I'll get you a chariot. It becomes yours, it becomes mine, but it's ours. It's as if the, you were just as much to me as I am. That's sharing, that's koinonia, that's fellowship. He's not asking if there's this good feeling that we have standing around church and talking about, you know, that comes from the spirit and having a cup of coffee and talking about football. It's not talking about that. It's saying, do you see that, do you see that by, by God giving us his spirit that he has literally shared all that he has? Is there a fellowship? Is there a sharing that happens in the spirit that just blows your mind? And then the last one he says, and if there's any affection and compassion, and again, he's not just saying is there these sweet things that make us feel nice feelings towards each other, but he's saying this, because compassion, literally the word that he uses is splankna, that means your guts. It's like the Old Testament word that we keep talking about, that compelling that comes from your guts, that just compels God to love us from his very core. And he says, he says this, he says, given that, given the advocacy that you did not expect from Jesus and given the provision that came from the father, that great patris patron, father, the greatest of all, given the response that he had and that love that come, doesn't that stir you to the very core of who you are? So he leaves those four ifs hanging there. And he's gonna have these four other kind of completions of this sentence in the next verse because he says, because if so, then make my joy complete. He's saying like complete, you know, connect the dots now, right? He says, so make my joy complete by having that same mind. What same mind? That same mind of advocacy. In the same way that you saw Jesus intercede for you to the Father for what you needed, you advocate for others who have needs as well. And he's not just talking about, yes, with God. You now have a position with God to intercede with God on behalf of others who don't know him. So intercede, stand, advocate. Paraclesis, go to God and be that advocate for them. But he's also saying, and with your stuff. 
I mean, you, you have access to riches, you have access to position, you have access to influence. Whatever you have, use it. Advocate to that so that others might benefit from it for their welfare, not just for yours. Advocate. So have that same mind of advocacy. Second is, he says, by having that same love, what same love? That paramuthion, that was that same love. It go out and tell stories about these others. When, when you're out, he's saying, go out and tell these, these good stories the same way that you tell stories about, your, your, about this great God, this great Father who's given you everything. Go out and, and have that same love towards others. So when you're in the streets, don't be undermining them with the stories that you tell. Don't be cutting them off the knees with what you tell when you're not in their presence. Instead, be telling these stories about, do you understand who this person is? Created by God, gifted by God. Do you see what a beautiful creation and person that they are? Do you see what God intends for them to be, even though they might not understand it yet? But I believe that God has made this person in there in his image, and he's gifted them and he's called them positions and power and influence that you can't, that none of us can imagine. Do we see that in other people? Let alone speak those words when we're in the public place. So he says, have the same mind, have the same love. But then he says, and then treating each other, how he says, uniting the spirit is how we translate it, but literally means. Treat this person as if you are two people with one soul. That's what united in spirit means. So share what you have with this person as if they are just an extension of you. As if their welfare matters just as much as your own. So if, if you have food and they don't have food, and if they're an extension of you and their life matters and their, their welfare matters to you just the same as if they were just an extension of you of the same spirit, the same soul, then you share your food with them. You wouldn't like cut your arm off and let it die just because it's not your, your other arm or your leg, right? So he says, so treat others as if they were just extensions of you sharing the same spirit. And then he finally says, and focused on one person, on this one purpose, this, have this intentionality, that kind of gut-driven intentionality. Do you see? I mean, he says these four things here, and then he finishes them off there. He says, if this, then do this. And be intent. But he ends it, and he says, with one purpose. And you go, okay, what's that one, what's that one purpose, that one mindset that you want us to focus on? Well, he's going to take a parenthesis here because he's going to give us two things that is not before he gives us the one thing that it is. So he starts with these, the next verses and he starts with the, he says, what it is not. First, what it is not is it should not be, you know, what this new life, this life of meaning, this life that God called us to, this mindset, it should not be that you gather a faction around yourself to try and win some battle to show how great you are. That's literally how they would have heard those words, selfishness and empty conceit, vain conceit. That's how they would have heard it. It's the, the selfishness is gathering your own faction and the, the conceit is to make yourself the head of everything. Now, I want you to think about who are these that are listening to him? Well, these are the Philippians. 
And they know literally that they exist in that place because Octavian gathered this army around himself, tens of thousands of soldiers, and that these, these others, the, the, uh, his, his enemies, the Brutus and Cassius, had gathered their army with tens of thousands of soldiers, and they had duked it out in on the plains of, of Philippi. Why? To prove who was the top dog, to prove who was the, the number one in the, in the empire. And the, the Philippians, they knew that. They had been, some of them had fought there and seen, they had, they had seen tens of thousands of soldiers wiped up and, and, and tens of thousands of, of civilians displaced so that the one person could say, I've won. And, and Paul's saying, don't do that. Right? Don't do that. In fact, he says, consider others as more important than you. So essentially, when you go into war, <laughs> just lay it down and say, okay, you win. Now, I have to be careful about when you lay out something that big and that Paul was talking to him because they were so wildly kind of, I mean, it was what it meant to be Roman was to go out and fight it out and prove that you had won, prove that you had the power and the strength and, right? And so Paul throws down this gauntlet the way that Jesus had and said, no, I want you to go wildly to the other side. Now, are there situations where you can't just kind of lay down and be the doormat? Yes, there are. There are. Where that's not about a witness. That just, that just gets you beaten up. And there were times that Jesus said, you have to be very creative because you can't, you can't oppose violence with violence. That doesn't, doesn't do anything for anybody. You just become like the thing that you say that you hate, right? However, in general, when you go into a situation where you find conflict like that, he says, consider first tactic, consider the other person as more important than yourself. Consider the other person as more important that they win than that you win. Leverage what you have to get them ahead rather than trying to take what they have in order to get you ahead. Here they were talking to the... <laughs> This, these people that they had literally kicked out the population to take their place, to gain their name, to gain their power. And you guys, I, I don't know, but ancient Rome, we can say this, ancient Rome, but do you know why we're here in this place? And I, again, this is history more than it's politics, but we are here because literally our forebearers kicked out populations to make place for us to be here and to have our name and our place and our power. So he's writing to us. He says, that is not how you live a life of meaning. You live a life of meaning by seeking the advancement of the other. And the second one, he says, he extends on that and he says, so don't simply look to your own interests, but to the interests of others. And he's not just talking about their interests. He's not just talking about like your needs. We often think of our needs, like I need food, I need clothing. It is that, but to the Roman, their interests, what were their interests? Their interests were advancement. Their interests were to have a name that meant something, that have distinction and power and status and, and, and a place. That's why some of these guys had fought in the war so that they could get this type of position in a place like Philippi so that their life would have meaning. 
says that's not where meaning is found. In fact, you should leverage your life so that you're helping others find place, others find name, others find power and influence. You should lift them up first. And all of it's tied to this the way that Jesus did. Because when he gets to that last one and he says, he says he's gonna zero in on then what is that mindset? If these aren't the mindset that we're supposed to have, what is it? He says, have the attitude in you that was in Jesus. Have the attitude in you that was in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the very form of God, he was one with the Father. He said all of that aside, He didn't consider that to be the thing to cling on to. He didn't consider that to be the thing to define his life, but instead he laid it aside and he took on this this role of a servant. And not just a servant, for our sake, if it even meant that he was recognized as as he was just seen as a criminal on a cross, the lowest of human society, if that's what it took, that's what he was willing to become for our benefit. Not his, because he started here. He put all of that aside for us. He says, so take on that type of a a mindset. Take that kind of an attitude. So here he is in this audience of the Romans who have been pursuing higher and higher kind of status and, and name and position and power. They had laid they had laid waste like whole populations, and he says, you know. Jesus did the reverse of that. And because of that, and this is where he follows out, and he says, because of that, God gave him the name that's above every other name. God gave him the position that's above every position, not just on earth, but in heaven. So that all those on earth, all those in heaven, even those who are dead and under the earth will bow their knee to the name of Jesus. And will speak with their voice that he alone is Lord. Now, that was a title. Lord was a title, and the Romans knew it. That was reserved for Caesar. He alone was Lord. But here's Paul saying, no. Because of what Jesus has done, Jesus received alone the title of Lord. So he says, you know, if you have aspirations of greatness, if you have aspirations to live a meaningful life, consider what that means. Do you want to find greatness in the glory of a passing empire like Rome? Rome lasted a long time. Do you want to find greatness in a passing empire like the United States of America? Do you want to find greatness in a passing season like this age that we live in of wealth and of of power and of digital expansion and of knowledge. and Is that what you want? Or do you want to find greatness for all of eternity, for all of time, in that you reflect more and more of the one who has the name above every name, Jesus? Wouldn't it be better to just be a client of Jesus than to try and be our own patron in the passing kind of nature and the crumbling nature of this world and its empires. So finally, Paul says then, so work out that salvation, that victory with fear and trembling. Work towards that end in your life. 
with fear and trembling. What does that mean? Fear and trembling is what you did before your patron. Fear and trembling is what you did before your king. It says work that out and the fear and trembling before God where you're in your very actions and your, your responses to God, you're acknowledging he alone is the greatest of patries, patrons, gods, kings. He alone. And his son, Jesus, he alone has been given the name above every name. So work out that salvation with fear and trembling before the one true God, honoring him for who he is, both in what we pursue and how we live. So how do we do that? How do we live a meaningful life? We live a life of service. How does that play out? Well, you guys, parents, you're constantly doing this with your kids. You are leveraging who you are and what you have on their behalf, almost solely for them. Now, that doesn't mean that you give them whatever they want whenever they ask for it. That's not, that's not really it. I mean, we, we really do quite a bit, but I mean, it's more that we, in everything that we do, we look for those opportunities that lift them up, that give them opportunities, that give them a chance at position and, and influence and advancement that we might... But it's also, do we instill in them this? That you know what? The the attitude to have is not the attitude of the world or not the attitude of Octavian and the generals, but to have the attitude of Jesus. That yes, there's certain ways that people advance in this world, but when we advance before God, it's like this. So we lay down our lives and serve like Jesus. Is that what you're speaking? How are you speaking... To your children, do they hear the words of Paramuthion? Do they hear the words of, of, do you realize what an amazing person you are? And is that how we speak about them outside of their presence? Do you realize what God has made you to be so that they get a vision for themselves beyond what their, their condition, their current situation shows them? Do we do that for our kids? How else can we live it out? Well, when you have the opportunity to give to somebody something that you have, to leverage what you have to give them an opportunity of something that they don't currently have access to. You know, we're going into our season of giving. We'll have opportunities for us to use our resources and redirect them towards the lives of others so that they might be lifted up. That's what it's all about. That's why we celebrate. We celebrate the season of giving during the season of Christmas because that's exactly what Jesus did, right? The third one I want you to think about, though, is we do this when we pray. When we go before God, knowing that he has made us his children, he has brought us, he's brought us closer than a client, He's made us his children so that when we ask him, we make requests of him, he says, I'll grant that request. Well, how many times do we use that opportunity? We pray for ourselves all the time, but do you know when you leverage that relationship you have with the father, the patris, the provider, the greatest patron of the universe, when you leverage that relationship with him on behalf of somebody who may not even know him, may not even be connected at all, but they're connected with you, and you say, I'm going to leverage that and say, Father, because of this relationship that I have because of Jesus, but I have this relationship with you, 
Please, on their behalf, do this thing. Heal, provide, come alongside, comfort. That's, that's having the attitude of Jesus. It says in scripture that he is constantly interceding for us, even to this day, before the throne of the Father. So what does it mean to live a life that's meaning, a life that reflects Jesus? Is that. Have that same mind. Advocate. Have that same love that drives you to tell these stories about God, but also about these, the wonder of the people that he loves and that he has created. Have that same fellowship with that sharing where you see others as just an extension of yourself, saying, sharing the same soul, same spirit. And do it with this gut level, just intention, this drive that's compelled in us because of what Jesus has done for us. Amen.